You've just tuned into Beyond Your Past, part of the Mental Health News Radio Network. Welcome back to Beyond Your Past. I'm your host, Matt Pappas, certified life coach specializing in overcoming anxiety and trauma recovery. And this podcast is all about helping you move forward from what holds you back. Each week, you'll hear from coaches, clinicians, and advocates who've overcome tremendous odds and are now using their journey to inspire you throughout yours. This is your place to feel validated and encouraged as you take your life back and live free from your past. Are you ready? Let's do this. Hey, greetings, everyone. Thanks so much for taking some time out of your day to tune into the show. And I hope that this episode inspires and encourages you on your own journey. Special shout out if you're listening to the podcast for the very first time. Welcome, and I hope that you'll enjoy it and perhaps check out some past episodes as well. And for all of you who are regular listeners, you guys are amazing. You rock, and I appreciate the support so much. And a big thank you to my incredible sponsors, INLPcenter.org, offering world-class online neurolinguistic programming and life coach training to people in over 70 countries. I'm honored to be able to receive my certifications from INLP Center and utilize their research and incredible training programs. And to daily recovery support, interactive daily group calls in a safe atmosphere for survivors of complex trauma, equipping you with the skills and information you can use every single day in your healing journey. Learn more about this affordable resource and get signed up at cptsdfoundation.org. If you find these podcasts helpful, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing it with your friends. That would be awesome. So today, my honored guest is Petra Velzebor. Petra is a mental health consultant, psychotherapist, executive coach, training provider, and the host of the podcast Adversity to Advantage. Her podcast features interviews from people around the world who are living life to the fullest, regardless of the cards they were dealt and in the face of the worst possible circumstances. I had the honor of being on the Adversity to Advantage podcast not long ago, sharing some of my story of thriving after childhood trauma, and now I have the pleasure of talking with Petra here on Beyond Your Past. Our chat today centers around mental health in the workplace and how she encourages employees and executives to normalize the conversation of mental health and promote an awareness in the workplace. We also talk about some of her personal story of being raised in a religious cult, experiencing multiple types of abuse and finding her way out of the darkest times of her life to now thriving in the wake of adversity in her ongoing healing journey. There's so much more about my incredible chat with Petra, so let's jump right into the podcast and listen right now. So, hey, Petra, welcome to Beyond Your Past. How are you? I'm pretty good, all the way from London. Thanks for having me on the show, Matt. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. And I'm so glad to have you here on the podcast. And of course, I was on your show not too long ago, and it was a wonderful experience. And I, I will put that link in, in the show notes. Um, so, yeah, why don't we start out a little bit? You can tell everybody what you're up to, what you're about, what your work is, and all that kind of good stuff. Sounds good. Yeah. So uh, my name's Petra. I, I live in London. I'm a mental health consultant. So I work with a lot of businesses around employee mental health. Um, luckily, that conversation is uh, becoming bigger and bigger, especially here in the UK, but I think globally on, on some level. Um, and it means I get to trial lots of uh, uh, training, uh, coaching, supporting leaders in leading by example when it comes to mental health. Um, and then I'm I'm a therapist, a psychotherapist. I'm a, a coach, and I've got a training company. So as you can imagine, Matt, I am pretty busy, but doing stuff that I love, so it doesn't feel like work usually. 
Absolutely. That's just awesome. And yeah, I, I think it's so just, I think it's amazing how the mental health world and, you know, is, is, is so diverse. I mean, sometimes we get kind of maybe, maybe a bit of tunnel vision or, or caught up into thinking that, you know, well, mental health is just a therapist or it's a coach or it's an advocate or it's a blogger, but there's the business side of it as well, which you mentioned, you are a big part of it of, um, of course, you know, um, influencing change and, and, and trying out new technology and coaching and working with businesses. So, And also thinking not just about sort of the, the mental illnesses side of thing, but the, the how do we create mentally healthy workplaces? So r- starting right in the prevention space of how do we have open conversations? How do we support each other? How do we have empathy at work? So that sort of baseline, which seems like foundational stuff that can be rocket science to some companies, um, so that we're preventing or that we've put the things in place so that some, when somebody is suffering in some way, they can have that conversation and get the support so that they can sustain work. Yeah, absolutely. And mental health in the, in the workplace is, I mean, for so long, and well, and actually, I mean, up until recently, it wasn't something you heard much about, at least not. Um, no. I mean, I came from the corporate world working as an engineer for 17 years in a company that oh, wow. is, you know, um, known around the world, honestly. And it was, I mean, they have started to kind of move into that area of providing support and different types of things for employees in the mental health aspect. But by and large, it hasn't been until recently that it's become more and more of an emphasis. And really, I, th- I think it needs to be much more because you know, between the pressures at work and the stuff that we take to work from home, you know, having having mental health uh, support at work is huge. It, it, yeah, it is huge. And, um, you know, it, it, it. my last job was as clinical director of an employee assistance program. So we really, you know, you know, this this issue was there, but it often showed up because there was a suicide or because somebody was on long term sick and uh, HR or people teams or, or even senior leaders just didn't know what to do or how to manage it. And so that's the route that it would sort of come in to further support. And the education piece over the last sort of few years, but especially in the last year, has been, you know, there's been reports, there's financial argument for if you put something in place well before, then that stuff doesn't have to happen or it becomes very rare. And I like how you're talking about engineering companies. I work with quite a few construction companies in, in a similar sort of uh, you know, ooh, you know, lots of men and we don't talk about our feelings and that sort of thing. But also the awareness that the suicide rate is in, in the UK anyway, is highest in the construction industry, uh, financial services. So, you know, people are waking up to what do we need to do to even be happy and fulfilled at work? It's the times that work is, workplaces are changing in general. Yeah, they absolutely are. And I know I want to get into some of your backstory, but I think we, we can kind of run with this a little bit here. And yeah, <laughs> so, you know, I mean, the work that you're doing in the business world and with companies and such, and you mentioned about how some of your work has taken you to places where there's a lot of guys and a lot of, you know, construction workers and probably a lot of old school tough guy mentalities, which is something that I've covered quite yeah. a bit in recent podcasts and on blogs. So maybe share a little bit more about your approach in with your work in these types of situations and how it's received and kind of give us an idea of how you approach mental health and how you approach teaching it and encouraging employees and bosses to open up and be aware of what's going on. Sure. Absolutely. Um, I think the main thing is teaching people about human connection, reminding them that we're all humans that are working together. Uh, And I remember very clearly teaching, I had about uh, 30 all men sort of project managers within the construction industry. And, you know, 
I'm a white female coming in to tell them about how to talk about their feelings. So you can imagine, you know, what that can sometimes look like. Like, oh, yeah, here's the fluffy therapist going to, you know, make us sing Kumbaya or something, um, which is never what I do. <laughs> um, what I do, however, is I talk about my own mental health. And so I talk about my own story and how I was suicidal 10 years ago and the things that I personally experimented with and learned. Um, and, and coming at it from that angle, uh, I then ask everyone um, uh, sort of a, both a general and direct question, which is how it has mental health impacted your life. So you can see it's not saying, do you have a mental illness? But it is saying, how has mental health impacted your life? And I get them to talk to their neighbor about what that looks like, whether that's an employee, a son, a parent, themselves, you know, but I, I had to, I have to lead by example in order to even make that conversation possible. And it's incredible. I don't care what crowd you give me, what industry you give me. Uh, I then might say, stand up if mental health has impacted your life in some way. Invariably, 95% of the room stands up. And, you know, now everyone's bought in because I'm like, well, I'm talking to everyone, not just the one in four or the one in five or whatever those uh, statistics might be, depending on where you are. So the approach really is how do we then lead by example within the cultures that we're in? And that means normalizing conversations around mental health. So when I was managing my team, I might come in and say, you know, how did you look after your mental health this weekend? So it's a different approach than than just sort of maybe the illness or the negativity side of things. Is that is that making sense? No, yeah, it does. Absolutely. And I'm kind of curious. So, you know, you're talking to all these people. And again, whether it's construction workers or whether it's um, yeah, you know, blue collar people or white collar people or whatever, how when you start talking about and sharing some of your story and then you start asking them, you know, how's mental health impacted you and have them yeah. start standing up and sharing how is it received? I mean, do you get a lot of people rolling their eyes or are they, oh, well, maybe, you know, it is a, an, impacting me in ways I didn't understand. Like I get, so is it, do, do people kind of latch yeah. on and run with it or is there still some kind of resistance? There really isn't. I'm not experiencing that there is, but of course I set up the question so that people feel safe and it's not directive. Um, but I will always, you know, say, would anyone like to share, like has mental health impacted you, especially in, in smaller sort of training groups and invariably, all these tough guys will be talking about how they've experienced something, how a brother has uh, sort of ended his life, how a wife has postnatal depression, how their son is dealing with anxiety. Like, and that's the open conversation that you want to, to begin to practice. Because I've seen professionals do the talk where it's all like, these are the signs and symptoms. And this is exactly, you know, the theoretical approach. And that's obviously valid and they're uh, very clever people and all the rest of it, but it doesn't have the dynamic impact in the room because it's not giving people an experience of how to have this conversation in the workplace. Um, but this is where I do wonder if the UK, some of the companies here uh, are, are a little bit ahead of the game simply because there's less of a fear around uh, you, you know, the suing culture and legislation and all that sort of thing, which in my experience of, of sort of American uh, companies can can be a little bit more prevalent. I don't know how you view that. Well, I mean, I can tell you, I mean, based on the experience of the company I was with, um, I mean, I will say that they were um, getting more active in employees' mental health, giving us options as far as, you know, uh, free sessions with a therapist or you know, relationships or sure. marriage or family or, you know, child, you know, child or whatever. So I think that they, 
being a large company have been more open to these types of things, more, taking a more open, diverse approach to it. Um, by and large, and again, I can't speak for everybody, but uh, outside of that company, I think that there's still just a whole lot of resistance to it. Um, more of that, you know, come to work, do your job and, and leave your stuff at home kind of mentality. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and again, that's not just blue collar. That's, I, well, I, I think there's but, progress being made, but. But then, and then what's really exciting is working with the newer companies. So the startups that have grown rapidly and are now sort of 200, 300 employees. So there, you know, it's lots of uh, millennials, lots of people who are in this generation of, you know, looking for authenticity and meaning within their work. That's how this is generationally, incrementally, uh, things are changing as far as the workplace with technology and all the rest of it. And what's exciting is to try, you know, I just ran uh, uh, empathy training quite specifically uh, for an exec board of a new bank that has about 300 employees. And that was exciting stuff. And when you then go to the more old school kind of blue collar, white collar organizations with these live case studies of what does work in supporting uh, retaining staff, that's one of the, the big ones that employers are looking at. When you can retain staff and prevent long-term absence, so there's a financial argument, but you have live case studies of where this is working. That's when you get the buy-in. That's when you get people going, oh, in order to be sort of the best place to work and be on these sorts of lists and have people wanting to, to work here, these are the types of things we need to do now. Yeah, and you know what? That is a great point, is a lot of times when you have companies that have been around for decades or, or even centuries, there are still, yeah, exactly. There are still a lot of, there's still a huge generation gap between, you know, your, your millennials and of course the old school. Um, there, yeah. There's a lot of people who, who are running companies who are, and again, I'm not trying to stereotype everybody who's older is not aware, but again, there's, there's a, there's a, a difference and more of an emphasis when you have a company that's run by millennials or other young executives who are more open to, the mental health, you know, giving employees ways to kind of blow off steam and share and talk and interact and have support groups and do yeah. things that aren't just all about the bottom line. And, you know, a lot of your progressive today companies, and as you mentioned, a lot of startups. Um, and I think that that bodes well for the future in a positive way, because obviously, you know, the, the millennials and new generations are going to keep becoming, you know, um, are having positions and higher ups and companies are starting their own. And hopefully this trend continues where there's an emphasis on giving employees the ability to work through and, and deal with their mental health outside of the home as well. Exactly. That's where we're headed. And it's a it's really exciting time to be working in employee mental health. Now let's kind of go into a little bit, because you mentioned about sharing your story when you're in, um, you know, when, when you're doing a training or a presentation. So, so when so maybe share a little bit about that backstory and and how your kind of journey started and what you've been through and how that's gotten you to this point because I I know some of it but I'm I'm anxious for you to share more of it so everybody can learn more about you and what you've been through. Sure, absolutely. Um, when when I teach my training facilitators to because they all have a mental health story that's sort of what allows them to work with me because that's our sort of our unique selling point. We kind of do the mental health elevator pitch where we uh, practice. Um, uh, kind of telling our story, but for the purpose of other people's learning. And that takes a little bit of time just to have that little bit of distance. So my story in a nutshell was I was raised, I was born into and raised in a religious cult called the children of God. Um, and some, some people uh, find the hippie commune element sounds quite exciting and quite connected. And there were 
bits of it that were amazing because I grew up in India and Brazil and I spent time in Russia and Kenya and all over Europe. So I can now appreciate all those kind of differences have added to who I am today. But there were a lot of things along the way that were challenging, even traumatic. There was, um, you know, uh, abuse that went on. There were people close to me who I witnessed, uh, you know, being uh, publicly punished in different ways and uh, lots of emotional abuse, lots of if you didn't fit the sort of standard way of thinking, then there was something wrong with you. But then the community would take all the credit if something was good. So, you know, ridiculous things like exorcisms and, um, you know, just a really strong belief system of what was expected of us. Um, But interestingly, at the same time, when you're in it, it's sort of a bubble of normality. A lot of my generation who were born into it, it was really the after effects of when we left in different ways at different times where, you know, the impact just hit us like a ton of bricks, leading to, for, for me, like a really dark place where, uh, I became quite depressed. I used alcohol as a coping mechanism and definitely got into addictive and dangerous patterns there. And then 10 years ago was uh, completely suicidal. And I'd been, you know, I'd been out of the, the cult for probably eight to 10 years at that, by that time. But we simply, we didn't have formal education. We just weren't given the tools for like, well, how do you build your resilience and how do you deal with uh, sort of the real world? Um, and, I guess what I did was when I was absolutely at my rock bottom suicidal place was I made this secret pact with myself that I would wait a year, that I would give myself one year uh, to end my life. Uh, And within that year, I would determine to study and learn and develop my own mindset because I could witness other people being happy and I just couldn't didn't know how to crack it. So within that year on my secret mission of experimenting on myself, I tried so many things, including therapies, including meditation, exercise, uh, just learning to be authentic and open about who I was and my feelings. And the year passed and I was by no means in a perfect uh, state, but I certainly had found hope. And I found I'd become I found this mission of looking after my own mental health and in the same way uh, supporting other people, because then I got excited about what worked and wanted to share it. That was a lot to give us a, a bit of a start. <laughs> I know several people who who have been on this podcast and who have written guest blog posts and whatnot who who were raised in a cold. And obviously it is an extremely traumatic um experience. And as you mentioned, you know, you are in a bubble. It is like you're in, you know, a commune or and just kind of you're isolated and your world is the people around you, the town you're in, wherever you're living, and that's all you know. And then you get out for those that are you know, that manage to break free of it, and you're like, well, now what? Like nothing's yeah. the same. Like, you know, what is this real world and where am I and what have I missed? And like, that had to be just incredibly scary when you got out and you're like, well, now I'm on my own and I have no idea who I am or what I can do or how to get a job or how to get money or anything. Right. Exactly. And I, I, I complexified it by having a child very early and then having two. And so here I was a parent of two kids realizing that I was repeating sort of traumatic patterns within uh, for my own children, which was, you know, I hated myself for that. And, and often when we have trauma or abuse in our lives, that can be a way that it expresses itself when we have kids. Uh, and that was part of the scary reality for me of needing to, well, hiding it in guilt and, and alcohol addiction, but then realizing I was doing the same thing, if not worse, to my own kids. And some of that created the, the wake-up call 
that that I needed. Yeah. So so how did you get out of the cult? Was this, I mean, was it something, did you have to escape or was it more of, okay, well, I'm old enough and I'm just going to walk out the door and that's it? Completely. And I think it's le- like, it was less about having physical walls or, or, or premises that we had to escape in any way. It was more the mindset of, you know, what made a good and a bad person, the guilt around, you know, I mean, we were raised to save the world, like literally our generation, our purpose in life, as we were taught and sort of brainwashed every single day was that we were supposed to save the world, which is kind of a lot of pressure for a kid to be like, oh, okay. But that was our one purpose. So if we veered off of that or felt like we, you know, wanted to do other things that weren't in that blueprint, you know, it was really, uh, we were put down for those sorts of things. Um, and so it was figuring out every single step of the way, not to mention that there was, uh, there was free love within the cult, which is a great idea when it's an, you know, adult only hippie commune, a less great idea when there's lots of little kids roaming around. And it's, uh, the, you know, we weren't really taught boundaries when it came to, especially as women, uh, our bodies and, uh, what was okay to say no about. And that also led to really damaging, and I see it with so many of us within our generation, really damaging toxic relationships, sexual relationships, leading for me to, to start being raped when I was uh, 18, 19, um, and putting myself in those sorts of dangerous situations, which then feel like they're your fault, you know, because that's the conditioning that we were raised with, was that anything that bad happens, anything bad that happens, you're out of God's will or it's somehow your fault. So I think as far as escaping, it's the mindset thing over so many years, not to mention the getting an education as an adult, trying to play catch up on all of that side of things. But it's taught me so much about how how we think and our perception and our mind really is the greatest prisoner of all if we let it be. You know, that's where our victimhood stays. That's where we judge ourselves and have no self-compassion and, you know, like for me, definitely turned inward to to feeling like I was a bad person, the shame. And, and I, I know we talked about that as well when, when I interviewed you, just um, the shame and hiding away can just make things so much bigger than they actually need to be if we begin to instead show up as our authentic selves, mess it all and ask for help. Yeah, absolutely. And again, um, you know, whether it's the trauma of being raised in a cult, whether it's childhood sexual abuse or anything else, that shame and that internalizing and, you know, I must have done something wrong. I didn't stop it. I didn't yeah. reach out for help. I'm broken. Like all the stuff we, we put on us yeah. last for, for such a long time. And it definitely carries into adulthood. I mean, my goodness, I spent decades being, and you know, what's interesting is, and I don't know if you saw this too, but I spent such a long time with, you know, problems with, with, with self-esteem and self-confidence and, you know, problems with eating and weight and all these things. And I was beating myself up for something that I didn't even realize until Mm -hmm. I kind of started to dive into my own healing work. And I was like, okay, well, all this makes sense now. So did you find that during those dark times, did you understand that it was from all of the brainwashing and the grooming and, and the mindsets that were instilled in you during that time? Or did you have to kind of come on that gradually or? So gradual, so painfully gradually. Um, yeah, I didn't, I couldn't put the connection together at first. And the, the father of my children, my ex-husband now, um, you know, he was the epitome of a, what I thought was a normal family. Like I just really wanted to slot into someone's version of normality. Of course, a little while later, I realized no families are normal and they had all sorts of drama themselves. But I was trying to fit into that in some way. 
interestingly, through some of the darkest period, I was training to be a therapist because I was like, well, what's the one thing that I know how to do is at least I know how to be with people. And um, that's all I've ever done in my whole life. Uh, and so there was this real kind of, I don't want to say double life, but in a way, like hide all the shame and the struggle, but try and show up and do education and put the smile on your face and be a good person. Um, so, of course, that lead led to my first experience of therapy myself, because you've got to be in therapy to train as a therapist. Um, and it, I mean, it was slow through friends, through therapy, through through Alcoholics Anonymous, through community. And, and I'm you know, I still hit therapy every once in a while when I when I need to. I've done some trauma work as well. So gradually I'm understanding my patterns of behavior, taking responsibility for my own life. And looking even with empathy and compassion at people like my parents and, you know, that generation, which trust me, has been the hardest journey of all. Oh, my goodness. That is a huge topic. I mean, we could spend a whole podcast right? on that. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so, so how was that? I mean, maybe we could share a little bit about it of having empathy and compassion for, for parents. And again, now, I mean, this could be if they were either the, if they were the people who abused us or they allowed it, or they somehow weren't aware when they should have been. I mean, there's a whole dynamic for all of those situations, but I have had to come to grips with some of that myself yeah. Um, because like my parents weren't the abusers. It was a child. It was a teenager up the street when I was between five and 10. Um, you yeah. know, like we talked about on your show, but I had to, and I spent a lot of time not even realizing I was blaming them for not taking care of me and then working through, well, you know, maybe perhaps they should have done more and maybe they should have been more aware and I shouldn't have been able to run around, you know, the neighborhood when I'm five years old. And then eventually to the point now where, how much am I going to let this affect my life? How much am I going to use radical acceptance and kind of let myself off the hook kind of thing? Yeah. So, yeah. So maybe share a little bit about that if you can. So I would have to say I'm still working through it. It's a loaded topic. Um, but uh, my parents were not per perpetrators in any way. It was more the the kind of anger and rage around, you know, not having had an education or being given the tools uh, or, you know, when things started to go wrong, they stayed in it or, you know, that kind of stuff, obviously not fully seeing it from their angle. Um, I've, I've moved away from Christianity as well, which has this lovely forgiveness sort of ethos. And, and that was the basis for, for the cult. And so that doesn't quite fit with my belief system anymore. But I do know that when we hold on to things, it makes things worse as well. So it's like in order to look after our own mental health, how do we process and let go of things? And actually, only a few weeks ago, something quite transformational happened to me where I, I'm divorced now and experiencing loneliness. I work for myself. There's a lot of like me going, oh, God, I'm in a big city and I'm trying to connect with community. And so I went to this festival that was super alternative called the Togetherness Festival, which was around intimacy and human connection. I mean, it was it probably mirrored the good bits of the hippie commune cult that I was raised in. So the good bits, which were, you know, lots of hugs, lots of smiles, lots of deep conversations, um, trying lots of different uh, sort of workshops and things and connecting with anyone, no matter what their, their age or background or, diver you know, ethnic diversity or anything. And it was kind of, um, 
brave of me to do this. And it was on like the Oshalila community grounds, which are another cult. Like that was on the, on that's been on Netflix recently. And so I was like texting my friend going, if you don't see me, here's my address, like going into some kind of trauma state. Right. Um, but I stayed with it. And what, first of all, what I taught myself was I could be in an, any environment I wanted. And I now had boundaries and was an adult in that environment and could make choices around it. The second thing was, oh my God, I felt empathy for my parents because I was like, this feels beautiful. It feels intoxicating. It feels, and it was, it was, there was nothing dark about it, you know? And I was like, we, some of us want, I could get how they wanted to leave their nine to five boring jobs and, and, and boring trajectory of like getting a mortgage and just connect with loads of people and feel part of something. Um, if my mom listens to this, she'll probably be weeping because she doesn't quite know this transformation that has occurred for me. But I've been communicating with her in a, in a different way since then. Um, so I think my lesson from throughout all of this is keep showing up at life. Because when I was depressed and I, I chose to not show up unless I, except for the bit that I absolutely had to, um, I've checked out, you know. And and what's worked for me is to keep doing the work and to keep showing up and to keep taking risks even in how I connect with people. Because what I don't want is to have all the walls up because I've been hurt or because there's been abuse or because I've been raped or because like, I don't want to be like, I've, I've tried that method. It's not fun and it doesn't help anyone where the wall is, you know, 10 feet tall around you and nobody can get in, you know? Um, I want to connect. I want to be open and I want to use my experiences as I do in my work to help other people find, you know, their own way out, their own bit of hope in a similar way. We're so aligned because you've got a, a sort of a similar um, passion, but keep showing up at life. Like that's the, the, the main bit of advice that I have. And just because we've had one experience or several, that doesn't have to be the map for the rest of the journey. Oh my goodness, you are so right. And when you were talking about having walls up, I can remember sitting in a therapist's office and then also talking with a coach uh, virtually and, and, and giving this visual of, you know, my life is like these castle walls and they're like super high and there's guards all over the walls and guards at the door. And, you know, the gate is up and there's a moat around everything and I'm all closed oh. off and I don't reach out because I've been hurt and burned and abused and taken advantage of and all this stuff all throughout yeah. my life. And then, you know, once you start to realize that there are some safe people, you start talking about your past, you start working through and doing all the things that, that are, that are part of your recovery you know, the guards on your castle wall are kind of, you know, there aren't so many of them that like the drawbridge is down and, you know, it's, it's just, you're opening yourself up and kind of exploring what's out there. And you mentioned too about, um, you know, being single and being busy and trying to connect with the community. And, uh, you know, I too am that way as well. Like I spend a lot of time alone, of course, writing and podcasting and coaching and whatnot. So I found getting out. What's that? It's so lonely sometimes. Oh my God, it's extremely lonely. And so I've had to do what you are mentioning of trying to find ways to get out of the house more. You know, when I worked in my corporate job, I was at my, I was at my queue from eight to four 30 every day. So I was kind of had, I had that human interaction, uh, you know, for, for better or worse, some days I had that human interaction all the time. And now, you know, when you spend a lot of time at home in front of your two monitors here, and most of your interaction is virtual, getting out in, in the community, trying new events and seeing what happens. And, you know, even if you try something new and, and you don't like it, you tried something new and you learn from it. So I think it's a great reminder for, for all of us who, you know, spend a, a good deal of time 
working and connecting, but we're also alone a lot is get out there and try something new. Like you mentioned this, this event, which, which, you know, it kind of was, was a little awkward at first, but it also brought up a lot of good memories and kind of maybe opened the way up to more communication with your mom. And yeah, we need, we need human connection. And I'm seeing that even in the mental health space, like there's got, there's correlation between the rise of technology and the, you know, the assumption that there's more connection, but actually there's a disconnection um, and our mental health issues, you know? Uh, so, and I can feel it myself. I'm an extrovert. And if I don't actually see or actually touch, like that's what I've been missing was like what felt so good were the actual hugs or the handshakes or the proximity to an actual human <laughs> rather than um, staring at a screen. I mean, I even have therapy on Skype. So um, <laughs> there's, you know, I, and I'm so passionate about my work. Like I'm fulfilled in my work. It's not in any way to do with that it's like oh if I have so much of this I need to offset it by taking the risk to show up in in new ways that I didn't have to before because I had a job for example so yeah so one one of the last things I want to cover and and you touched on a little bit was um, you know how you mentioned about seeing a therapist now and then and so how much of what you've been through does affect you on a daily basis now and how often do you need to maybe get, you know, some help of a therapist or a coach or somebody who just kind of talks some, you know, things through with based on what you've been through? I I approach therapy more in a preventative way. So when I was being divorced, uh, I I kind of thought, okay, well, it's going to be an adjustment, even though it was my choice and, and I felt empowered by it. And so on the surface, these were good, exciting, independent changes. I knew that it would be a massive uh, transition, that things would come up because change just brings stuff up. And so I called my therapist and was like, hey, can we can we chat? And we chat every other week or something like that for a period of time, just because just to like act as a prevention measure to get my head in the right place, to have a bit of backup in in figuring things out. Um, th- things do affect me, but not they don't derail me. I think that's the difference. And I can very easily kind of have friends or people that I go, oh, that triggered that feeling in me. Or for example, if I'm, if I'm dating and somebody's leaving or moving, you know, I'm like, Ooh, that, that triggers that feeling of when I had to say goodbye to friends, like every bloody year of my life or say goodbye to places, you know? And, and so I can, I have more self-awareness around what's triggering up for me. And also the things that I need that, I mean, it's, we, we know it's common sense stuff, but things like sleep, nutrition, exercise, connection with the right people, like all of that foundational stuff, I've got to be almost, and and I don't drink as well, I've got to be hyper aware of it if I want to kind of work at the top of my game. I've got a, if I've got a big talk coming up 48 hours a week before, I cut out sugar, I I try and sleep really well, I try and nurture myself so that I can be who I want to be on stage. Um, I've got to consciously make, and I don't always get it right, and sugar's been a recent addiction that I've had to be like, oh my God, noticing that it was filling a void of some kind, uh, you know, replacing or, or dating even to like replacing alcohol. And it just, these are clues that tell me I need to talk to somebody to create some balance. So we are a work in progress. When you put in the hard work of healing and you've been at it for a while and you're taking care of yourself and you're, and you're self-aware, the things that may have knocked you down for weeks, months, maybe even years at a time now it's it's more of an awareness of, oh, I know where this is coming from. I know what this feels like. Perhaps I better schedule a session. Perhaps I better get a little more sleep or, or you know, put, put up some boundaries or do something just to take care of myself so I'm not knocked sideways like I used to be. And now it's just more of, you know, causing us to pause and remember, acknowledge where it came from. And then 
uh, you know, put in place the coping skills and all the strategies that we've been working on. So, and I found that as well. I mean, there are things, times, there are times when I still get triggered and I'm like, oh my God. And, and, And it does knock me sideways for a bit, but not near to what it to what it you know used to do before so no. i think it's a great way right it is and what i do where it used to be like months or at least weeks or like you know forever that i'd just be knocked and depressed and victimy uh sometimes i give myself a time limit so it used to be longer and I, i've slowly shortened it and i give myself a time limit to fall apart so sometimes i want to cry sometimes i have been triggered and sometimes but it's shortened from like a month, two weeks, whatever, to two hours. Uh, that's probably it, two hours. Maybe maybe sometimes I'll just take the evening to, to just sort of regroup and whatever that looks like. Um, and that's like four hours, six hours, something like that. But I mean, what a shift from like a lifetime of dread, which is what it felt like before. Oh my God, that is a great, great strategy and something that is so important. You know, allow yourself time to fall apart. Have a good yeah. cry, lounge around and binge on some Netflix, lay around covered up under a blanket for a few hours. Just give yourself time to feel it and don't stuff it away and then say, okay, I've been, I've been, you know, allowing myself to feel this. I've laid around, I've done whatever I need to do for an entire evening. Now I'm going to get up, get dressed, get a shower, get something to eat, call a friend, and then slowly start to pull your way out of it. And that's yeah. where you can really feel the work, you know, all the hard work paying off. Absolutely. Just don't stay there. Keep showing up at life. Don't use it as an avoidance mechanism for not showing up. Most awesome, Petra. This has been amazing. The time has flown by. I, I can't wait to bring you back, right? <laughs> I, I can't wait. I, well, we're going to collaborate anyway, so I'm excited to have this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that you were able to come on the show. And indeed, we are, we are going to continue to collaborate on each other's shows um, in, in the future on more specific topics. So uh, before that, though, why don't we wrap this up? You can tell everybody where to find you, um, also about your podcast, your work. And also, by the way, if you ever do come to the U.S. for a training, let me know. I will buy you a coffee. Yay, I'd love that. <laughs> uh, perfect. So so my uh, podcast uh, in a similar vein to yours is called Adversity to Advantage. Uh, so all about resilience and how people, whatever whatever their situation, how they bounce back. It's my curiosity, and I just love having those conversations. Uh, and then my website is my name, which is PetraVelzebor.com. Um, and through there, you can find all, all my socials and my LinkedIn and, and everything that I do. So please find me and get in touch. Thanks for listening to Beyond Your Past, part of the Mental Health News Radio Network. Information shared on this podcast is intended for educational and informational purposes only and is not a substitute for or supersedes professional medical help or mental health counseling. Thank you again to my sponsors, INLPcenter.org and Daily Recovery Support. I hope you'll consider checking them out as they've joined forces to help keep the lights on here at the podcast and help Beyond Your Past reach as many as possible with a message of hope. If you'd like to learn more about working with me as your coach, or if you're curious about what life coaching is and how it might be right for you, then head on over to beyondyourpast.com and claim your free one-hour session where we can talk about the struggles in your life in the areas of anxiety and trauma recovery and see if coaching might be a great fit for you. Thanks again for listening, and I do hope that you'll subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, and share it with all your friends. See you next time.